One of the promises of artificial intelligence is aiding humans in making smarter decisions. Whether it's in big life sciences and pharma firms or retail banks or e-commerce companies, the idea of being able to pull together the streams of data that we have and coax out the insights that would help us make the best call for the organization to reach our goals, to have a higher profit margin, whatever the case may be, this is exciting. This is in large part the promise of artificial intelligence and sort of what, what gets it on the radar of executives, probably like many of those who are tuned in right now. And as it turns out, uh, that same dynamic is sort of happening in the public sector, uh, where AI is now being used to inform policy. I was fortunate enough to interview someone this week who's working on exactly that, leveraging data to make smarter decisions, in this case, in the policy side of things. Professor Joan Peckham is at the University of Rhode Island. Previously, she was program director at the National Science Foundation, PhD in computer science, and she runs the data science initiatives at URI. The University of Rhode Island is, is home to Data Spark, which is sort of an organization that helps policymakers inform the decisions that they're going to make about the economy, about the environment, about the opioid crisis, whatever the case may be, based on deeper assessments of the data and being able to, to aim to coax forth kind of the objective insights that might be able to make better decisions about where money goes and what decisions are made. For me, this is very correlative to what's happening in business. Business leaders are aiming to do the same thing better dashboards, better predictive analytics, better understanding of what's going on so that they can inform where they're going. And I think the dynamics that Joan articulates, I think, translate to what's going to be happening in the C-suite. Right now, the folks who are writing laws and informing regulation are beginning to tune in uh, to artificial intelligence as a source of informing those decisions, certainly not making them, but informing them. And I think in the C-suite of big companies, the same dynamic will play out particularly when the data is actually there. And Joan does talk a bit about some of the data concerns that have to go into this and sort of the fact that, that there, is no, there is no crystal ball in artificial intelligence, but that this is sort of a, a way to hopefully make better decisions and kind of when is that possible, when is it not? I think Joan goes into some useful insight. So this is a cool opportunity to speak with someone from my own alma mater. I'm grateful to Kareem, who is the Dean of the University Libraries at University of Rhode Island. He was kind enough to have me at URI for a TEDx talk about a year ago, and he made sure that I got to get the grand tour of the little URI AI lab down there when I was back in my home state. So uh, without further ado, this is a fun interview on using AI to inform decisions, in this case about policy, with Professor Joan Peckham at the University of Rhode Island. I'm Dan Fagella with Emerge, and you are listening to AI in Industry. Let's roll right in. So, Joan, where I wanted to get us kicked off, I know that you've applied data science to policy concerns from the workforce to ecological considerations to kind of disease and, and you know the opioid crisis. When you think kind of at a high level about where data science has a role in policy, how would you describe that? How would you nutshell where it fits in? It, it's very important, I think, to policymakers today to um try to make decisions that are based on data, not just a sense of what people believe should be done. And I think there are many are feeling frustrated that they don't have access to this information. And so the data science can help them to compile data 
and link data in ways that, that we weren't able to do before and make um, reasonable decisions about these policies. It doesn't mean that data science tells them what the policy should be. It means that they are being provided with sources of information that will help them go to the experts in, in education, healthcare, and so on, and given the data, make the most reasonable policy changes or recommendations. Yeah, and, and it sounds like you know this curiosity is actually very similar to what we see in bigger businesses where the kind of the first thing that people think about for can we use AI around here, which which is often, you know, a, a pretty common thought, it is hey, we have all this data. Are there patterns here that we could mine that would be useful? And obviously for policymakers, they're making decisions about pretty important matters. They probably have the same thought occur in their minds. Maybe we could do more than anecdotally combing through this. Maybe there are actual patterns across these and we can actually you know, inform those. Although it, it seems challenging to some degree, Joan, because I'd presume maybe sometimes policymakers kind of have you know, agendas for political allegiances or kind of beliefs in some way that might vary it from making kind of necessarily the, the quantitative insight is there maybe a part of the policy, enough of the policy process that is trying to be grounded in objectivity to actually care about that? Because I feel like politics is a hurly-burly world and, and policy is as well. It almost feels like, man, where does objectivity fit in there? Well, I think being human is is the, the key, is that psychologists tell us that we frequently make decisions with our guts. Yep. We decide before sometimes we look at the evidence. And then we, if, if left unfettered to, to make these decisions, we might make decisions, uh, we might go out and glean uh, the environment to find the data that supports our Suppositions, yes. Yeah. And yeah. so what we really need to do is to put into place, you know, uh, procedures and strategies for making use of data on the data, uh, the data analysis side, as well as, uh, you know, the interface with the human being, where the human beings are drawing conclusions from, from the data. It's really it's one of the key factors in a data, good data science education, for example, is to really consider the ethical implications. You know, one of my favorite books is Kathy O'Neill's book, um, Weapons of Math Destruction. Where yeah, she yeah, yeah. <laughs> she talks about many of these things. And I don't think that the conclusion is that we shouldn't be using uh, big data or artificial intelligence, but we have to understand the limitations. Artificial intelligence was developed in order to have the machine make decisions as well as, as human beings do, but we're, we're, not, we're not there yet. And so it, it is a, and I don't know if we ever will get there where the machine will replace the human being, but we have to learn how to synergistically work with, with the algorithms and the machine. The human in the loop is going to be extremely important, but we left to our own devices have to be careful too. We need to consider the ethical implications of what we're doing and, and understand our own psychology of how, you know, if left to our own devices, how we might um, yeah. data. And and I completely agree. I think that it's tough to root that out. You know, in, in other words, I'm wondering to myself how we could kind of bring that ethical precept here to life. In other words, how can we ensure that we're not presenting, maybe we're not using the data sets we know are going to help our decision, using the, you know, analytical methods we know are going to help our decision. 
how do we control for that? Because it seems like somebody is ultimately funding the research, you know, the research that, you know, a team like you folks at the University of Rhode Island will do, you know, in some way, shape or form, it gets funded from somewhere. And so it seems like, how do we shake the incentives from raw political belief or raw biases or raw business or political interest kind of out of our conclusions as much as possible? Where, where does that barrier happen? What do you think could be improved there? Because I, I can see the challenge that you're addressing. I think it's education. So, you know, long ago when I was at NSF and working on computational thinking, we finally decided that everyone needs to know a little bit of computer science. Well, I think that everyone is going to need to know also a little bit of data science and artificial intelligence. We, we all need to know enough so that we know when to bring an expert to the table and how, how to bring people from different disciplines that might have knowledge that could help us to make decisions based on data. I can give yeah. you an example from computer science where we just had some one of our industrial partners who's doing quite a bit of software engineering and data science in their company. And one of the things that they do is that when you are designing an experiment or you're designing software, there are certain forms that you fill out to capture, you know, what it is that you're going to be doing, if it, whether it's data analysis or developing software. And there's one question they always have on these forms, which is, what could be the possible ethical implications? Let's have a discussion mm. before or as we're developing the software instead of what we frequently do today is make use of the software or the analysis techniques and begin to see the harm we're doing. And then we back up. We have to develop, you know, create laws and policies and so on. We need to educate all of our technologists to begin to think about that as we're, we're developing. Yeah. And so, okay. So in imbuing, imbuing the ethical considerations kind of into the into the initial conversation, you know, ah, where could this steer wrong? What could be the issues here? And again, making sure that maybe the people involved are in some way informed as to the fundamentals of data science. So if there's some clear kind of rough oversight in terms of what data was used or ignored, we, you know, the, the people analyzing it, the people making the policy discussions would at least have the savvy to say, hey, why are we only using those two data sources from those two places? You know, and they might be able to have their antennae up for research that might be a little bit off or might not be addressing the range of concerns. It sounds like that kind of education might be necessary to sort of have the discernment be able to happen, not just in the lab with the scientists, but by by the people that connect with them on the policy side. Is that a proper nutshelling of where you're going? I just want to make sure I'm encapsulating things. Correct. And, and the other aspect is, you know, the, the knowledge about the tools that are being used. So that if someone is drawing conclusions based on what a machine learning algorithm is telling them or a statistical analysis technique is telling them, they should know enough about those techniques to understand the appropriate use. What kind of data sets will this give you a viable answer, a reliable answer? And what, what sorts of data sets should we not be using these techniques on? What are the yeah. weaknesses? and strengths of each of these algorithms. People program algorithms, which means, yep. you know, the algorithms have shown to have certain biases, which are a reflection of the people who are and the data about people that, that we're, we're using. So, yeah, I think that, that probably we have to be careful 
about what we're doing. You've probably read about the um, the algorithms that are being used to sort through applications for jobs in the technical field. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Using artificial intelligence algorithms to do that, but what they found was that some of these algorithms were biased against underrepresented populations and minorities. And that's because <laughs> the data has those prejudices as well, because humans have been behaving in that way for a long time. So we've imbued yeah. the data as well as the algorithms with these, you know, prejudices that we have to be, have to be very careful about. People need to be knowledgeable that the algorithm is not an oracle. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. So those general bits of understanding, it sounds like, like if you think it's the oracle, then you take for granted its answers instead of being able to give it the critique that maybe all research should be able to get before we make firm decisions uh, from a government level. Well, that's a good point that you make. This is the foundation of the scientific method that you yep. develop a hypothesis looking at the trends that you see, and then you test it out using a well-designed study. And then you publish the results and the rest of the community is supposed to be questioning those results. Yes, yes, yes. replicating yep. that study and, yep. you know, having that discussion. Yes. Okay. Got it. And so, yeah, it sounds like that's, we need to be able to have at least the conceptual understandings to begin that questioning, lest we basically take whatever is given from the data scientists as if it's, you know, the scroll of the Egyptian priests from, from which is, you know, the word of God. and you know, be able to continue that, that questioning. And as you had brought up, you know, there's all sorts of questions about the data we're using to train things. Sometimes there's, there's human bias coming in. Sometimes there might just be facts and patterns in the world that we don't like. You know, I can imagine a circumstance for a hiring scenario where I, I don't know, we can pick a random role. Let's say it's a sales job, or let's say it's a customer support job or whatever, where by some weird, you know, pattern over the course of thousands of employees, men just in general are not as good at it. They're just bad at like the job, you know, like writ large from from all the data. And nobody like imbued that in there. Nobody had some anti-man feeling that they really felt deep in their heart. But the machine just said, this is the darn pattern and I'm making the call. And are there entire categories like gender that we just don't even want to feed a machine? Because even if it's right, it's so socially detestable that we don't even want to do it. Uh, and it feels like all of those conversations, I think, still need to be figured out. That feels like a real rat's nest to me. It's a rat's nest, but that's where we need to begin to ask the questions. Maybe we do put the data in, and when we become horrified at what we see as the results, yeah. we, you know, go back to the human beings and say, what have you been doing out here all this time, and how can, yeah. we, how can we consult with the experts in you know, psychology, sociology, and so on to make this better? Yep. And so, yeah, so general education level needs to lift. Uh, that, that seems to be a salient point from you here. I, I guess, let me ask you this as a next one. You've worked on a number of these projects. Just talk kind of open-ended about maybe some of the projects that you've thought were worthwhile endeavors for data science and policy. Your, your range has been pretty wide. What are a few snippets that'll kind of give us a taste of where data science is beginning to wiggle its way into policy uh, and where you folks are currently kind of a, a part of that conversation or have been in the past? Well, in our state, the agencies are very um, interested in education and workforce, for example, how, you know, what you do when students are in third or fourth grade may impact their outcomes in um, post-secondary school. And then what is the trajectory for, for these students in the workforce? And that also brings in data from, you know, the health department 
In other words, if we notice that students are exposed to certain things in their environment or if they have certain health record, how does this affect, you know, what happens as they go through school and then um, in the workforce as well to become, you know, working citizens of, of the state. One that I, I noticed from, and, and I think this is a really good example, from Massachusetts is a group that looked at opiate addiction. And this was not just looking at the data with regard to incarceration and, and uh, law enforcement. It was also had to do with health and, and other factors. In this state, we've reduced the, um, I just read in the newspaper, the overdose rate after incarceration by 60% by providing treatment for people when they were released from prison. I mean, that's, mm. now that's a very simple analysis, but there are other things that, that we might be able to do. The cost of health care. I have heard with from some of the health care providers in, in the state that the cost doesn't necessarily correlate with the quality of health care. So what is it that the hospitals are, are doing that is providing a, you know, good quality health care with good outcomes that's different from the other hospitals? It's not necessarily just spending a lot of money hiring more people or having you know, better facilities and so on. There may be some procedures that, that we need to look at. So how do we tease that out and yeah. see what's going on? That's something on the top of everyone's mind right now, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's, I mean, you know, just to put some color on this, I think these are all good and you can run with whichever one you want, but well, you know, how, do, how does this look in real life? I guess I'm thinking to myself, okay, some government agency, like let's say the, you know, Environmental Protection Agency or something in Rhode Island where, where you're based and where I was born and raised, you know, says, hey, we need a group that can help us actually analyze this data and figure out what the effects of, I don't know, the, these past pollution policies have been, or what the effects of these chemicals seem to have been long-term on these kinds of environments. And then then someone comes up with the funding, and then someone finds the data sets, and then you guys get to work. How do all those pieces come together? So someone makes a decision, we need to ground this in some kind of truth. What are the sequence of events that happen after that to get a group like yours to, to actually start working on a project? Okay, well, in Rhode Island and in about 22 other states in the union, the federal government has funded these linked data sets that come from the, the various agencies in the state. And so we have in Rhode Island Data Spark, which is now resides at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, they were funded by these federal awards in order to procure data sets from the agencies with agreements. So security is a big issue as well when you're linking data sets and, and have information about individuals. But this group is funded by the various agencies with the questions that they have. There's another thing that we're trying to move forward to do, and that is to Again, securing the data so that individuals aren't identified or people have permissions to do that, to put this, some of these data sets or make them accessible or data sets similar to them to scholars and students so that, you know, as the agencies have told us, scholars and students sometimes have questions that we never even thought of, but we would benefit from, you know, having some of these observations that could help us to drive policy. So we're working on um, trying to develop synthetic data sets, which are data sets that look very much like the actual data sets, but will not reveal identities of individuals and, and yeah. allow this, this sort of interaction. Uh, it's kind of a citizen scientist thing, except it's scientists and students where 
you know, you have so much data, like the astronomers have done this for a long time. How can you get the data out there for people to look at, to make discoveries that we might not have the workforce to do, or maybe because we're looking at it a little differently, we can make discoveries that we wouldn't have made otherwise. So it's tricky with healthcare data and with agency data because you do have to protect that the um, yep. privacy of the, the individuals who, you know, for whom the data has been collected. And then there's X degree of analysis. And then this is in some way, I guess, presented in some sort of desired format to the group that asked for it. You know, there's some kind of end product, I presume, for the most part, whether it's a report or a new set of tables that they can explore and tinker with. What, what are the likely end products here from these projects? So usually in our case, of course, there's a whole pipeline of things that have to happen. The data is collected. It has to be cleaned. It has to be sampled in reasonable ways so that the analysis tools that you use are going to give you the kind of results that you need. And in this particular group that we have in the state, that it's linked data sets across the agencies if they want to ask questions in, in that way. And so they, you know, have the privileges and, you know, um, ability to look at these data sets and then aggregate the data to answer the questions that are being made. And so they present the results in reports and in visualizations and so on, based on the questions that have been asked by the agencies. And that is what the agencies are able to use then to then have their discussions about, well, is there something of concern here? Is this something that would drive policy? Are we going in the right direction with this particular policy? Is the outcome, you know, like with the incarcerated opiate addicts, is this the, you know, this decision of providing treatment post-incarceration, is this really working? And so can we continue in this direction? Is there something else that we need to be doing? Are the numbers down in, in the ways that we want them to be? Yeah, usually the question, so far the questions have been originating from the agencies where they have a question. And I, I am so excited that I have heard, at least through the grapevine, that the legislature in our state has been telling us that they would like to make evidence-based decisions and they want to have information. So, yeah. you know, I think it's, you know, especially with what's happening in the state, bringing companies that are hiring our technology workers and then working very hard at my institution and then training more people in these areas, looking at where the trends are, where we need to train, what we need to do to provide the companies, the well-educated students in this area of artificial intelligence, data science, cybersecurity, you know, computer science, many of these areas. So, you know, data is, is used everywhere. Higher education uses it. Are we doing what we should be doing in the classroom? And, you know, we, as I mentioned, healthcare and education, transportation is another area. And of course, the, the environment, looking at the environment, are we cleaning yep. up the bay quickly enough so we can eat those nice, lovely oysters that we now can do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not, every, not everybody understands enough about uh, Rhode Island. But yeah, if you're, if you're there, folks, you kind of have to do the seafood thing a little bit, you know, just a Rhode Island thing. Um, so I, I guess my takeaways here, Joan, just in, in uh, interest of time, but kind of distilling what, what you're saying here is what's coming to my mind is that it sounds as though there is this idea of kind of a general awakening to the fact that the data may hold patterns that can make us make more or allow us to make more informed decisions, hopefully better decisions, fingers crossed, and that, that policymakers are becoming aware of this, agencies are becoming aware of this, and these data sets are being created. You know, DataSpark at URI and, and other organizations in other states are sort of 
coming together to sort of be these sources of, you know, hopefully very objective assessments on these topics. I guess the hope is that objectivity can continue to be firm, you know, despite whoever ends up funding things and that the, I guess, literacy around the ideas of data can be increased so that the critical conversation about these new products, these new kind of data reports, data analyses can become a fruitful part of the conversation rather than some kind of new lore added in in a mysterious way. And I, I guess, you know, your your hope and certainly part of your efforts, it sounds like, is making that education part of this uh, this yeah. transition here. Absolutely. Cool. Um, and you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I don't want to repeat the history of statistics in which many people with not much knowledge about those tools were applying them to inappropriate data sets and deriving results that, that you know, were harmful and not correct. You know, quants not consulting with the experts in the domain to say, yeah, I, you know, and so on. So, yep, there are no oracles, audience. There are no oracles. And uh, Joan, Joan can reinforce that. So, thank you so much, Joan, for being able to be here and, and shed light on the very unique use case of data science that you folks are working on. I sincerely appreciate your insights and thanks for being here. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get uh, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.